let's make our way to the book of Acts, chapter number 5. Acts, chapter number 5. I had in my mind I was going to uh, announce two other texts that I know are going to get preached, and just to make them a little nervous, preaching on the tail end of a conference, my concern always is, well, is that text going to get preached? Uh, but there's a lot of, uh, lot of scripture, right? A lot of territory, and uh, so we're, we're thankful for what uh, God's led us to this morning. This has been uh, on my heart this week, and I uh, pray that it will be a blessing to you. And like Brandon, I kind of wrestled with direction from the Lord, and after his message last night, it solidified my direction, so I appreciate Brandon being sensitive to the leading of the Lord in that as well. So Acts chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse number 33, uh, down through verse 42. That'll be our text this morning. Notice the Bible says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people's some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the, in the, the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The title of the message this morning is very simple. It's a charge to us. It is keep preaching Jesus. Keep preaching Jesus. Now this may sound like maybe an oversimplified title, but it really is the central focus of our calling and what we as Christ's servants are called to do. As we look at uh, this text, along with knowing how the rest of the book of Acts goes, what is it that we see is the mission of believers in this world? Are we in this world to live unto ourselves? Are we here to have as many accomplishments and accolades from the world as possible? Are we to build up our own pastoral empire and have as much recognition as we can get? I think we all know the answer that none of those things are what we're called to do. See, God has revealed to us that He has an all-wise, glorious purpose that we are included in. He has placed us as His people in this world for a central reason, and that central reason is His own glory. Never mistake that, that we exist, we breathe, we've been called, we've been saved, we preach, all to the glory of God and to the glory of God alone. And so he called us and he called the church to herald the gospel, the good news of the risen Redeemer who has reconciled sinners to himself uh, to preach that message to the entirety of the world. And this is what the early church understood. This is what they believed. They knew that they, like Christ, they were in this world, but they were not of this world. And so as we know in the book of Acts, it's a book that gives us the early actions of the church and Really, more importantly, 
the actions of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Before this, just to give you a little background, we'll come into our text here today, that we remember that in this chapter, Peter and John, they were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. An angel came and set them free miraculously and told them, go back and preach in the temple again, and that's exactly what they did. And so we come backwards, and I'll read this with you just for a moment, verse 28, if you would. And the Jewish authorities interrupt them again. And in verse 28, we find they say, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, By hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so with this backdrop, we see why we see what we see in our text through the rest of this chapter. They were told explicitly, stop preaching Jesus or else. Now, what would the early church do in the face of such tyrannical demands? Well, thank God they kept preaching Jesus. They kept preaching Jesus. But as we look at this text, I see a challenge for us today, especially us who have been called to preach the gospel. Often in our ministries, we will experience some form of opposition, some form of hardship, some form of trial, some form of oppression, and it may even come that you will experience a form of persecution. We experience pressure from our culture and temptation to alter the message, uh, to, to, to alter it for the world's sake. That's a temptation that many face. And with all the conflicts of gospel ministry we experience, it is easy for us, if we're not careful, to become discouraged, to become doubtful, to become even depressed. Many men want to throw in the towel and just give up. Call it quits on preaching the gospel of Jesus. But we have to come to a point where we realize that though we have the conflicts we face in gospel ministry, we are on victory side. We're not preaching a broken message. We're not preaching a defeated message. And so this text reminds me of some immovable pillars that we need to lean upon to continue preaching Jesus no matter what that cost may be, no matter what the response may be, and no matter how we may feel in the moment of our conflict. Now, this may seem to be a simple exhortation and message, especially to a bunch of preachers. We've been called to preach Jesus, right? But I need reminded of some of the things we see here today. I pray they'll encourage you. So notice with me, I have three headings here this morning, and I'll try to to be quick in bringing them to your attention throughout this text. But notice, number one, I want to point out the counsel of Gamaliel about believers here. The counsel of Gamaliel about believers. Now, there's two propositions that Gamaliel gives here that I think uh, that are good for us to know. And the first proposition is about the gospel, about what the apostles are doing, and here's that proposition. If the gospel be of men, then it will fail. If the gospel be of men, it will fail. Now, you come to verse 33, and after Peter had said these things that we are going to obey God rather than men, you guys really are the ones who killed him. The blood is upon you. Uh, And so we read in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
Well, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, they reacted the same way towards Jesus. Jesus taught truth. Jesus rebuked them for their hypocrisy. He told them the truth as it is. And we read in Luke 22, too, that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And so that's ultimately what it led to. They killed Jesus. By all means, now they want to kill his apostles, too. Now, Christ is the example for us, and the apostles followed in that example. But then there comes an interruption here from a man who seems to have some sense about him. Even though he's a, a lost man, there's, uh, there's some sense that he gives here that we learn from. In verse 34, we see a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, a doctor of the law. He interrupts their council to kill the apostles. So who is this guy that just shows up in Acts on the scene? Well, he was a guy that's pretty well known. This uh, Gamaliel was known as Gamaliel I. He's referred to in several places in rabbinic literature. He was the son or grandson of the famous Hillel. You'll hear of the school of Hillel. So he was, he was uh, the offspring of Hillel. And he seemed to have been at the prime of his influence from about A.D. 25 to A.D. 50 in that time frame. Rabbinic tradition gives him the title of Nasi or president of the high court. And his son Simeon... Uh, would follow him in that role. But uh, perhaps probably the esteem of him is best expressed in this statement in the Mishnah, which says, When Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. You can see from their tradition how highly regarded Gamaliel was. Even the Apostle Paul referenced Gamaliel as part of his background in training. In Acts 22 and verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So Gamaliel is the one with authority here. He's one that uh, is well known by them. And so what does Gamaliel put forth to his fellow Sanhedrin members? Look at verse 34 and 35 with me. Notice that it says that uh, in verse 34 through verse 35, but a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men out for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. In other words, he's telling them, they want to kill them. Push pause for a second on your assault to kill them. Push pause on your assault to kill them. And why is that? Well, you come to verse 36 and he gives two other movements that were recognized and known in that day. The first one he gives is in verse 36. He mentions a man named Theudas who rose up to be somebody. And as this somebody, he drew, about, drew away about 400 people. Now, Theudas was one of the many insurgent leaders who arose in Palestine at the time of Herod the Great's death in 4 B.C. Now, Josephus references another Theudas way later than Gamaliel, but this, this is the most likely one that, uh, that Gamaliel is referencing. This man, Theudas, was killed, and what happened to him, Gamaliel says? He says, all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So this guy who rises up and begins this movement, he dies. His movement, his movement dies with him. You see another instance in verse 37. He points out Judas the Galilean. He also rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. Now, this guy, Judas, he started a major rebellion in protest of the census under uh, Quirinus. 
which was undertaken for the purposes of taxation. Now, according to Josephus, he laid the foundations of the zealot movement within Judaism. You've probably heard of the zealots. You find find one of uh, Christ's disciples was known as the zealot, a movement that would grow to such proportions that in less than 25 years after Gamaliel said this, it would ignite all-out war with the Romans. Both of these men were rebels, zealots who gained a following. And so Gamaliel here says that Judas the Galilean perished, or he died, just like Theudas. And what happened to his movement? All who followed him were scattered. The point Gamaliel is making is very clear to us. This is what happens when movements are of men. Of men. Now, what is Megaliel's conclusion here in reflection? In verse 38, notice what he says as he continues this. He says, so in this present case, he's referring to the movement of Jesus of Nazareth. What's he say with this? He says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. He's right. If it's of man, it will fail. Now, we learn this through history. There's been many movements started by the council of men throughout history that have risen only to fall. Why is that? Because movements of men cannot and will not sustain themselves unless God sovereignly allows it for His purposes. And even then, Christian, remember this. In the end, there is no true movement of man that will last on into eternity. Every man-made movement, even though they seem to be big and are loud and mighty, will be brought to nothing. And I'm talking about even the big ones of today. Islam will be brought to nothing. Mormonism will be brought to nothing. Catholicism will be brought to nothing. Jehovah's Witnesses will be brought to nothing. These are man-made religions. Every cult, every movement of men you could think of. Psalm 33, 10, 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of His heart to all generations. Now, though Gamaliel is giving some true advice here, he's still wrong. Because in verse 38, he says in this present case, he's fundamentally categorizing Jesus of Nazareth with the others. Just as another one of these zealots who gained a crowd and was killed, and even today you're going to find some people who just look at Jesus as a zealot. Someone who was uh, very politically active and then was killed by the Romans. Many people view him as that way falsely. How mistaken they are. But that brings me to Gamaliel's second proposition. His first proposition is this. If the gospel be of man, then it will fail. But then there's another aspect here. If the gospel be of God. If the gospel be of God. Now notice in verse 39 what he says. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing or fighting against God. He's at least more honest than a lot of people in cultic circles, right? They don't even give any option for for, for the fact that they could be wrong. But Gamaliel recognizes that if this is indeed of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. And, And as I read that statement, it stirs me as a gospel preacher because we are on the side of God. We are part of not just a movement of a dead man, but the reign of a living king. 
Friend, understand this, that, that you and I, we're part of something that can't be stopped. If the gospel's of God, who or what can stop it? If this movement of Jesus and the message of his resurrection is of God, what could the Sanhedrin do about it? The answer is nothing. Nothing. With their threats, torture, and even murder of Christ's disciples, they could not stop it. you remember what Paul's words were to the Romans? Romans 8.31, he said, What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, in the context of that golden chain of salvation, we were predestined to be called and converted by the gospel. And just as God predestined our salvation, sanctification, and glorification, understand that he has already predestined the success of the gospel. He's already determined it. And so this is God's work. It's not our work. It's God's work. He includes us in his work. And that's a privilege for us. Now, Gamaliel says, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. This movement of Jesus of Nazareth is different from that of Theudas and Judas the Galilean. Well, why is it different? Well, it truly is a movement of God, not of men. And how do we know this? Because Jesus, he died like those other guys died. They died, he died too. But Jesus not only died, he arose from the dead. And you and I, we have to remember that this is the pivotal point of everything we do. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus is not risen, read 1 Corinthians 15, you know that passage. If he's not risen, we're still dead in our sins. If he's not risen, our faith is vain. If he's not risen, our preaching is pointless. Friend, if Christ isn't risen, we're wasting our breath here today. There's no need for a conference like this if Jesus is in the tomb. And the truth is that Christ is not in the tomb. He's not in the tomb, friend. And here's what we as preachers have to remember, especially in this day and age and what goes on in the culture around us. We're not on the losing side. We're not on the losing side. We don't need to be pessimistic, and we don't need to live as if Christ is still in the tomb. Praise God, he's alive. Your ministry has power because he's living. Peter preached on Pentecost. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. You see, Gamaliel's advice has been proven true throughout history as the gospel of Christ did not die but rather flourished far beyond him, even in the face of the most intense persecution. Many powers and authorities have sought to wipe out Christianity. Every single one of them has failed, and they'll continue to fail. The other side of this coin is that Gamaliel points out that if this movement is indeed of God, and they fight against it, he says, you might be found to opposing God. I can't think of a more terrifying proposition as being on the side where you are fighting against the Almighty. Fighting against God. Proverbs 21.30. Scripture says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You see, the heathen, the nations, the depraved of this world, they rage against God and against Christ. And David says in Psalm 2 and verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
You see, to fight against the gospel of Christ is to fight against God, and that is a fight that no authority, no uh, power, no ideology will ever succeed against. There may be dark days in history. Don't get me wrong. There's persecution. There's suffering. But understand that dark days in history allow the gospel to shine even brighter. Nothing challenges the gospel's victory. So based on this theological truth that fighting against God is an impossible endeavor, Gamaliel counsels them, leave them alone and see what happens. Just in case they might be right. Just in case they might be right. Now, his advice is ironic since already his counsel is finding fulfillment. Christianity was growing in leaps and bounds, far beyond measure. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Acts 2 and verse 41 through 47, look at this with me. Acts 2 and verse 41 through 47, and look at this. Peter preached that powerful sermon on Pentecost, and what what happened with this? It says in verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had all things common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all that had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, Praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Persecution continued to come. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John thrown in prison after they preached another powerful message. And in verse 4 4, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. So you understand there's been a turn of events here in which at least 8,000 people have come to Christ in Jerusalem. This shows the mighty power of God in what we see. We see the increase of Christians, not the decrease. And why is that? Because Jesus truly is alive. The apostles saw him and his powers manifested in them. Now, Christian, we live in a world when we are inundated by negative news. That's all you get, right? On your phone? What if you got a notification every time someone was born again in the world? Think about that. What, what if you got a notification every time someone was genuinely born again in somewhere on this big globe God's created? You and I don't see all that God's doing everywhere else. We're often inundated with negativity, negativity, negativity. And what I want to remind you as a preacher of the gospel is this, is that you and I, we're on the winning side here. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Long ago I used to see that, well, the church is always on the defense, and they're always going to be able to sustain through it all. That's a verse that's offensive. Offensive. You and I are on the offense. We're not on the defense. Jesus said the gates of hell cannot stop the power of Christ in his church. And so with this, we see that Gamaliel's counsel gives us great confidence in preaching Jesus. We know it will be successful. But notice with me number two this morning, our second heading. 
We've seen the counsel of Gamaliel for believers, about believers, but notice the calling of God for believers. And here's what we see in the apostles and their reaction and what they're experiencing here. There's two things I want to point out to you about this. You and I must resolve in our hearts to suffer for the gospel. We have to be ready and willing to suffer for the gospel. Now, the Sanhedrin seems to heed the words by not seeking their death at the moment, but they still want to get in their, their, little, their little hit here. So they reprimand the apostles here, and then they beat them for preaching in the name of Jesus. They command them not to. In verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So before letting them go, they beat them, they flogged them. Flogging was referred was a, was a customary punishment, often used as a warning not to persist in an offense. It consisted of 39 lashes, often referred to as, uh, as 40 less 1. Paul recalls him re- receiving that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less 1. It wasn't a light punishment either. I mean, nobody likes a whipping, right? Except my son David, for some reason. If he misbehaves in church, we tell him he's getting a spanking. We go home, can I get my spanking now? I was like, what's wrong with you, kid? Nobody likes a whipping. But here they, they, they take the apostles, they whip them. And this wasn't just some spanking with a paddle. This is, this is with whips. They, 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 would, they, would have, they, they would have whipped them with their shirts off on their back and on their chest. And, and so they would have been beaten and, and bruised and possibly bloody. Now, Jesus prepared them for this persecution. He said to them beforehand in Luke 21, 12, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. The disciples knew that this was coming. But here's what we have to realize. It's not just a calling for the apostles to suffering. It's a calling for all of us as Christians to suffer. For the cause of Christ. Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 1.29. It's been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him. But also suffer for his sake. It's been gifted to you. Granted to you. To be able to suffer. It's been gifted to us that we get to believe on him. But also to suffer. Now today we don't live with much physical persecution. For the gospel. In our own nation. What opposition we experience is often more mental and verbal. It is a persecution of oppression to varying degrees. But even in those things that we experience in our own ministries and in our own nation, we are to be faithful to the gospel. We are to be faithful to the Bible truth, no matter what that cost must be. We must resolve to die on the hill of Scripture alone and Christ alone. We look around us and see those who are screaming and yelling their hatred for Christ, for God's law, for a biblical worldview. You see this in recent uh, days with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. You know, as I watch those protests, you know who they're condemning for this? It's the Christians. The Christians' fault. You get on social media, you put things out there that are biblical and Christian, you get some... Uh, who just rail you for your Christianity. So I want to encourage you, don't let the obnoxious chance of the depraved deter you from lovingly and boldly preaching Jesus to them. 
from lovingly and boldly standing on the, on the gospel and on the Bible alone. Those lost in depravity, they essentially live in delusion. But that doesn't stop God from saving those who are lost in depravity. It doesn't stop who we are. It doesn't stop what Christ is doing. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2.10. He said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul endured suffering, not only for Christ's sake, but also for his people's sake. And you understand that we as preachers, we are called to suffer for Christ's sake, but also for his people's sake. Those we minister to, and also those that are going to come to him in time. You see, God can and will sovereignly open the hearts of his chosen to see the truth when he sees fit. But he does that. How is it that God does that? He does that through faithful people like us who will not back down from the gospel, but will continue to say, Jesus is Lord, man is depraved, and he alone is redemption for sinners. You and I, we're not to care what the world thinks about us. We're not to worry or be concerned with having the approval of those bound in darkness. We are only to seek the approval of God alone, because his approval is the only one that matters. Thomas Boston said this, and I quote, The applause of the world is worth nothing. When it is God, what have you? A vain, empty puff of wind. They think much of you, you think much of yourself, and in the meantime, God thinks nothing of you. That's the reality. Why change our message? Why, why, why alter who we are? We don't do that. We're to preach the word without apology. We're to seek to please God alone and let the chips fall where God wills them to fall. And if that means that we must suffer for the sake of the gospel and for Christ's name, then we are willing and resolved to suffer. But not only that, notice secondly, that not only must we resolve to suffer for the gospel, we also must rejoice in suffering for the gospel. And this is the mystery that many don't understand. You look at what happens here. Typically with suffering comes great emotional and mental despair or discouragement, right? A lack of joy. Lack of happiness, lack of peace often fills our mind when we suffer. But what do we see here in our text? Look at verse 41. After the disciples are beaten, what do we find? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. What are they rejoicing in? That they're free? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Christ. I mean, what a backwards view this is in light of the world, right? The world would look at this as ludicrous. Who in the world would rejoice in suffering? But the apostles here, they leave that place. Imagine this scene. Their backs beaten, battered, bloody, walking away with a smile on their face. Can't wait to get back and tell the others what they experienced for the sake of Christ. They've rejoiced in their suffering. For him. Now, who here thinks of suffering as something to be admired or desired? None of us, right? I mean, typically, when it comes to suffering, we want to go the other direction. And when we do experience suffering, we pray, God, take it away as fast as you can. But as you know, sometimes God will bring a season of suffering to you in your ministry for the sake of his glory. 
to grow you, to cultivate you, and to use you in those moments. Don't waste a good trial. Don't waste a good trial. Just be faithful in it. You see, why would suffering be something worthy of such, something that we would say is worthy, uh, that we look to something worthy of? And the reason for that is this. It's because Christ suffered for you. It's because Christ suffered for His church. It's because He suffered in an infinitely greater way. And our suffering in Christ brings eternal glory to Him. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So understand this, that the cross of Calvary gives me perspective for my own suffering. But not only the cross, but as Peter mentions here, the promise of His coming also gives me perspective for my own suffering. And you understand that the majority of your New Testament was written to suffering Christians. Which is why there's so much about suffering. Because they're in the world, but they're not of the world. Now I think this response of rejoicing probably takes them back to that great Sermon on the Mount. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? I mean, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are reviled. Blessed of those who are persecuted for his name's sake. He says to them to rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. You see, this kind of joy and suffering is only possible because of the living Jesus who resides within us. Your joy and suffering is just another testimony that Christ lives, that he's alive. That he's not dead. Who else is worth suffering for, even dying for, other than a risen Lord and Savior? Suffering is worthy of honor when it is for our Lord who was crucified for us. The Bohemian reformer John Huss, you've probably read of him. He was a man who believed the scriptures to be the infallible and supreme authority in all matters. He died at the stake in Constance, Germany, and for that belief on his 42nd birthday, as he refused a final plea to renounce his faith, Huss's last words were, what I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. And I look at the martyrs of times past, you and I really haven't, we've not endured true persecution. That's a blessing we can thank God for. But in whatever form of suffering we encounter, we are to be faithful. Now bear in mind that our suffering, it's not going to be, we don't have much physical persecution from the enemy. And it may not always come from an enemy either. It may also come from being oppressed and ostracized from those we've been close to. Even those who profess faith may assault you, preacher. May assault you for your convictions about Christ. For your convictions about the word of God. Your convictions about the gospel. I've been there and done that. What do we do in those situations? You stay firm and just keep preaching the biblical Jesus. You just keep with the Bible. You keep with the text and you'll never go wrong. Stay firm and preach Jesus. Preach the Bible. Paul experienced both physical and spiritual assault. And he said at the end of his life in, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, friend. 
He has kept the faith. He has, he has held true to the truth of the gospel. You understand that the suffering of the other early church, it brought great power to the gospel message. And it may be that God will allow suffering to us so that the power of the gospel may charge forward in our churches, in our communities, and even in our nation in a greater way than it ever has before. It could also be that God brings great revival through faithful preachers like you guys who refuse to deter from the biblical gospel. Whatever God decrees, we must be found faithful even in suffering. Notice number three, our final heading. I'm almost done. I got three minutes. I got a timer here just to make sure. I want you to see the commitment to the gospel by believers. This is what we find with the apostles, the commitment to the gospel. Why are they so committed to the gospel here? Because they understood the importance of Christ. What do the apostles do after being told, stop preaching Jesus? Well, come to verse 42 and what do you read? Every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And that is the focal point of the book of Acts. God has empowered his church. He has commissioned his church and said, go tell of me. Go tell of the risen Christ. We must preach Jesus. There's no authority or power that would stop them. The only way to stop the gospel from their lips was to end their lives, which in turn would only empower more believers with boldness to keep taking the gospel. Now, why did they keep preaching Jesus? Because of they knew the importance of who Jesus was. They did not preach themselves. They did not preach their traditions. They did not preach their church they belonged to. They preached Jesus. And there's a lot of preaching I hear today that's all about the preacher being the hero. All about him and what he's done. We better get out of the way and just let Jesus be at the forefront. Because Jesus, as they point out here, he's the Christ. What does it mean that he's the Christ? That he's the promised Messiah. He's the one God sent. He's the one. He is the Redeemer. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the King. They preached the biblical Jesus. Not some watered-down Jesus that the culture wanted them to accept. And we see that assault now. The world wants us to preach a woke Jesus. Another church down the road, I won't mention it, had the sign, their, their church sign said, Jesus wasn't white. And I drive about, who cares? <laughs> who cares what color he was? He wasn't black either. He's a Jew. Go look at a Jew and you'll see what color he was. Why not Jesus is Lord of all? Why not Jesus died to save sinners? Their message was meant to cater to the woke ideology permeating our culture. And preacher, understand this. We don't need to alter or adjust the gospel to fit the cultural trends or demands. We just need to preach the biblical Jesus, the only one God gave us. Because there's only one gospel that works, and it's the biblical gospel. The gospel is not a message of man, but the message of the eternal Messiah. This message of Jesus, it was not about a temporary movement or mighty men with great power and eloquence. No, friend, it is the message of a sovereign Savior who demands man get out of the way. It's all about him. The message of Christ, it may stir the hatred of some, but it will still also change the hearts of many. 
Because Christ is who he is, and he does what he does. It doesn't matter what man thinks of him. We must recognize that truth. But not only, not only do they understand the importance of Christ, lastly this morning, they understood the importance of the commission. Now, Jesus did not tell his, tell his church to preach the message only if it's safe and convenient to do so. He didn't say to the church, only preach the gospel if the culture is okay with it. He didn't tell them to preach only where they felt comfortable to do so. He said to go and preach the gospel to the world. He said to go make disciples of the nations. You know what that means? You're infiltrating countless cultures with, a, with the only message that will change people. Remember what Gamaliel said. God's work can't be stopped. I want to point one, one last passage. Matthew 28, just read the commission to you. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Look at this with me. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friend, we are messengers of the King who has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's not any authority in this world that surpasses the authority of Christ. And what you find is that Jesus says, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, that's the reason we go. If he didn't have that authority, we'd be wasting our time. We wouldn't have the power to do it. But he says, because of this, go. Because of this, go. And because of his authority, we know of a surety that his gospel will prevail and win those who he has ordained for them to win. We're not losers, friend. We don't surrender to the depraved culture around us. We march forward under the banner of the risen Lord. Christians don't own a white flag. We don't own a white flag. So let us not be discouraged today, Christian. Let us not be discouraged because we may feel things aren't going as we would like them to at the moment. Let us remember who Christ is. Let's remember what the gospel has done. Let's remember what God has promised to do. Let's remember what we're called to do. Preach Jesus and let our sovereign Lord do as he sees fit with his word. Because he's already promised that it's not going to return empty. And so we realize afresh that no matter how dark the days, how persistent the persecution, how severe the suffering, the power of Christ will prevail. And remember these words... If it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Take courage, preacher. Have confidence, preacher. Your labor is not in vain. The Lord is accomplishing His purposes through you. It is our responsibility to keep preaching Jesus because this is not the movement of a dead man. It's the reign of a living king. It's the reign of a living king. Keep preaching Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for this text before us. Father, even though what was said was said by someone who did not truly know Christ, you used him providentially to give true words for us in your word. That if what we're involved in is of men, it is going to fail. But we know of a surety without any doubt that the gospel ministry that we've been called to is not of men.
It is of you. It is of God. And may we as your people take confidence and have courage to stand with the gospel, to continue to proclaim it, and not allow the culture or the demands of the world around us to intimidate us, to discourage us, or to cause us to alter our message. Help us, Father, to be as the apostles, to rejoice in suffering, be willing to suffer, and continue taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.